I started teaching from John chapter 14 about what I call a Christian survival kit. The Lord was telling His disciples what they had to do in a crisis situation. They were going to enter into this terrible situation in between the crucifixion and the resurrection where it looked like all of their faith in Jesus was just dashed, that He was beat, and man, their faith was going to be tried, and crisis situation. And so He told the disciples what they had to do to be able to prosper in that. In John 16, 1, He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended in Me. So this is what I've been going through, and I tell you, I'm excited about this. This has been... uh, Some real practical stuff that if you apply it, it'll make a huge difference in your life. So the very first thing we talked about is, don't panic, believe. you got to believe God. And you've got to grab hold of your emotions. If you let your emotions get out of control, it's very hard to rein them back in. It's better to stop the situation before you get there. So the first thing is, grab hold of your emotions. Sin is conceived in your emotions. We talked about all of that. We also talked about how that faith is the antidote to panic. If we really trusted God and just believed God, there's really nothing to worry about. I mean, if and then the next step was put everything into perspective. And I was talking about how if worse comes to worse, you die, not a big deal. <laughs> we sing songs about when we all get to heaven and then the doctor tells you you're going to go there and you start crying. You know, if we'd really think about it, The worst that could happen is that the devil could kill you, and if you know the Lord, your future is secure. And if you would just look at things and put it all into perspective, it would keep you from entering into panic and things like this. And I believe that's the reason that the Lord talked about in my Father's house are many mansions. It was to put everything into perspective. I'm going and preparing a way for you, so don't worry about it. Get into faith. Don't panic. Then we talked about knowing God, how that the Lord here was saying, you know, if you had known me, you had known my Father also. And as soon as he said that, they said, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll satisfy us. And we talked about how that the disciples honestly didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't fully appreciate Jesus and recognize who he was completely. And so because of that, they didn't have full benefit of what he had done. And so we talked about how important it is to not just know about God but to know Him personally. And um, we talked about that the way you do that is through the Word of God. It seems like I'm forgetting something else. I think we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit was one of these things. Um, How that He said, you know, that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit, but you'll receive Him. And I just talked about how important the Holy Spirit is. If you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you are not going to survive in crisis. You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us to give us power. It says that He's the comforter. I talked about speaking in tongues and how you can interpret your tongue and how important all of that is. And I might have missed something. I forgot how many lessons we've had. Well, the Word would go along with knowing God. I was talking about that's how you know God. And doing the Word. That's right. And He talked here about if you uh, keep my commandments... Then, um, let's see, how did he phrase that right here? Anyway, it was talking about the importance of doing the Word. It's not enough. And I went over to James chapter 2 and talked about how faith without works is dead. So when you are in a crisis situation, you've got to make sure that all of your actions line up with what you say you're believing. You can't sit there and pray for healing and say, by his stripes I'm healed, and then act sick. 
you've got to get your actions in agreement with what you're believing for. And all of these are steps that you have to do in a crisis situation to be able to come out on the other side. So let's go on down. Uh, verse 26, I probably read this the other day, but let me just start in John 14, 26. He's still, this is the instruction he's giving his disciples the night before his crucifixion to help them be able to survive this crisis situation. And in verse 26, he says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, again, this is still amplifying on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, this is a favorite passage of Scripture of mine. And it's amazing how many people have the Holy Spirit in their life but don't draw on this. It says He'll teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance. If you really believe that, that He would teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, man, what a powerful gift is that. You can learn any, anything you need to know. You can prosper in any situation. But most Christians don't believe this, really. They honestly limit what God can do in their life because they just don't reach out and believe for this. You know, I have come to a place... You've heard parts of my testimonies, how I was an introvert and things like this, but not only was I an introvert, but because of my being introverted, uh, you know, I was very insecure on what I could do and couldn't do. My brother was a mechanic. When he was 14 years old, he took a car apart down to the last bolt and reassembled it just to see if he could do it. And he was a whiz. He had a genius IQ. He had a higher IQ than Einstein. And so my brother was just this real smart guy, great mechanic, and he was four and a half years older than me, and he tried to teach me these things. And you know the Sybil rivalry, uh, I just said, if he's going to be a mechanic, I'm not going to be. So I went the other direction, and I, I can't do very much, or I couldn't do very much as far as being a mechanic, and I was very uh, unskilled in all of those things. And anyway, when I got turned on to the Lord... I had to really believe God that I could start doing things. And I have totally changed my attitude to now. I believe I can do anything. And it's because of scriptures just like this one that he will teach you all things. I've worked on cars. I've fixed things. I've fixed things like a washing machine, which I have no ability to do. I've fixed these little mechanical things. Matter of fact, it's a challenge now. And I just believe I can do all things and I'll do things and I can fix things that I never could have fixed in the past. I don't know if I gave you my testimony about developing pictures. Did I tell that in here? I don't know why I ask these things. Some people say yes, others say no. Some of you have heard my take. But anyway, I won't get into the whole thing. But I got into a bind where a landlord, I couldn't pay him. And I went to him to tell him, I'm sorry, I can't pay you, but I will make it good. And he had a photography studio, and he says, well, I'll let you work it off, because his guy that developed pictures had quit, and this was the school pictures where you had, you know, an 8 by 10 5 by 7s and wallet pictures, and he was three or four months behind, and he was about to lose his entire business. And so, anyway, he brought me in and taught me how to develop pictures, and I didn't have a clue. I mean, you're in a dark room. He had a machine, and you had to take these things and put it under there and shoot this picture onto this developing paper and put it through the thing. And Anyway, it's a long process. And First time he uh, shot one of those pictures, he brought it out into the light, and he says, what's wrong with this picture? I said, nothing. Looks great to me. And he said, too much magenta. 
I'd never heard of Magenta. I didn't know what Magenta was. I said, what's Magenta? And he's, and so he went back in and adjusted the machine and shot it and came out. And, and he, he developed one picture and says, now you're on your own. And I must have had 10,000 pictures to develop. And I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it was thousands of pictures counting. They, they had 16 wallets, two 5x7s, and an 8x10, every person. And uh, he just stuck me in there. And you know what? I took this scripture that you'll teach me all things, and I had to, this was something I had to do. I owed this guy money. I couldn't get out of it. And so I started praying over it. And did you know that within two months, that man offered me an equal part of his business. I'd saved his business, brought him out of bankruptcy. I did things that he said were impossible to do. And it's because of this scripture. It's amazing what we could do if we would just believe the Word of God and draw on it. You know, there was one thing that he did. He had to shoot these. He actually had seven, I think it was a package of 17 wallet photos in this package. And one 8 by 11 sheet of paper developed eight wallet pictures. And he had a little frame made up where you're doing all of this in the dark. And so what you do, you put that under there and you cover the rest of it. And it was a thing that shielded it and you shot this picture. Then you scooted it over and it had things that you could feel. And you'd scoot it over to the next mark and you'd shoot it. And you could do eight of them like that fairly simply. But then... He had 17 in this package, and so one had to be shot on a piece of paper. And since it, you had to change the person's deal because they were only getting this one on this 8.5 by 11, he would just throw away the rest of that paper. He was wasting that paper. And so one day I got to thinking, that's wasteful. You know what? I'll take this one extra to this person, and I'll do that, and then I'll put the extra one of another one on this. And So anyway, I had eight different individual photos on one piece of paper. But the problem is, you got to change the negative up here to do that. You have to turn on the light, so that means you have to take this piece of paper and hide it and put it in a box, and by the time you bring it out, how do you remember which spot that picture that you're going to take goes in? And so anyway, I thought about it, prayed about it, and I... I had him out on a table waiting, and this guy came in, and he came walking into the uh, dark room, and he says, look at this, look at this. He just, he says, come out here, and he called all the staff together, and he says, look at this. you got eight different people's picture on this piece of paper. He says, I have been working at this job for 27 years, and I've only done that one time. He says, do you realize... How unusual that is. He says, you couldn't do that again if, you, if your life depended on it. And I took him into a room and showed him about 10 tables with must have been 40 or 50 of those sheets of paper on there, and I'd done it on all of them. And this guy just looked at me and he says, I don't know what you're doing, but he says, keep doing it. And that guy offered me a part of his business. And when it came time, I couldn't take it because I was called to preach, and that's when I moved to preach it. And Anyway, he brought in a guy for me to train. And so I brought that guy in. We shot a picture, and I came out, and I said, what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) He said, nothing. And I said, too much magenta. (laughs) And he says, how can you tell that? And I said, well, here's what you do. And and anyway, this guy was just panicking because I only was going to train him one night. And he says... I don't understand it. How do you do what you're doing? And I said, well, I'm going to be real honest with you. 
I pray in tongues and God tells me what to do. And he said, but I don't pray in tongues. And I said, you're on your own. I said, I can teach you how to pray in tongues. And other than that, I don't know what to tell you. And I just walked off. But you know what? You can do anything. We just aren't drawing on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, I need to go on. That was, I enjoyed telling that, but I need to go on this. In verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, you go, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, I want you to think about this. He says, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I say that I'm going to my Father. Think about that. This is talking about Jesus dying. He says, if you loved me, you would rejoice at my death. That's a pretty strong statement. You know, most people would look at the disciples during this period of time and they would understand how that if Jesus was killed, then it would be very logical that the Romans would come after his disciples. Their life could be in jeopardy. Not only physically could their life be in jeopardy, but their whole hopes and dreams were destroyed because he had, they had embraced him as being the Messiah. And here it looked like he'd been killed by the Roman government and he was defeated. And most of us would look at this situation that they're in and think that we would relate 100% and think, you know what? Anybody in their right mind should have been depressed, should have been discouraged, should have been bothered. And yet here's Jesus telling them what to do in a crisis situation. And he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice when you see me crucified because you know I've gone to my Father. So I want you to think about that. Why should they rejoice at seeing Jesus crucified. Here's what I believe the logic is. Jesus, of course, was the greatest example of love that ever walked this earth. He constantly was talking about his father. He says, I won't do anything without my father. His whole life was committed to God. If anybody ever had a relationship with God, it had to be Jesus. And he said that when he was crucified, he told him it was coming. And when this happens, I'm going to go to my father. And here's my point. If they would have only been thinking about Jesus, if they would have been more in love with Jesus than they were in love with themselves, instead of having sorrow and grief and worry and panic, they would have thought, well, regardless of what happens to us, Jesus is finally going to be with his father. He is not going to be persecuted anymore, misunderstood, maligned, fought against. He is going to be with the one that he loved. And if it would have been only Jesus they were thinking about, if they would have loved him more than they loved themselves, you know what? There wouldn't have been any cause of grief. And here is a great application, and this is something that you need to think about when you're in a crisis situation. You know what makes most of us crumble like a $2 suitcase under pressure, is the fact that we love ourselves so much. If you didn't love yourself as much as we do, if we weren't self-centered, did you know that there wouldn't, you wouldn't have uh, problems and worries and cares the way that we do? All of our problems, the root of all grief in our life actually comes out of self-love. 
Now, I know that's a strong statement, and most people don't think that way, but I believe that that's exactly true, and I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about right here. For instance, I had an employee one time that he built a little pond in his backyard, and his one-year-old daughter fell in that pond and drowned. And so we were having a funeral. He didn't want a funeral. He didn't. He was so grief-stricken, he didn't want anything to do with it. And, but I went to the funeral home, and we were with him, and it turned out that hundreds of people came through the funeral home to view this little uh, baby, one-year-old baby that was there. And they were making all of these comments, and people were crying about, you know, we're never going to see her have her first birthday cake. We're never going to see her grow up, never get a tricycle. She'll never know what it's like to fall in love. She'll never get to grow up. And they were just grieving and talking about all of these things. And it was heart-wrenching. We sat there for over an hour as people filed by. And the people, it was at a funeral home, and they just stayed. And he wasn't planning on any service or anything, but finally there was over a 100 people there. And he just asked me, he says, would you conduct a memorial service? So I didn't have time to prepare anything. And here, you know, this tragic situation, what do you say that helps people in a situation like that? Well, basically what I did, I did it tactfully. I hadn't got time to explain the whole thing to you, but I I got up and I recounted some of these comments. We'll never get to see her first birthday. She'll never do this. And I said, you know, really, the reason this hurts so much is because we're thinking about our loss we aren't going to get to see her first birthday. We won't get to see her have all of these things. But I can guarantee you that God, she's in the presence of Jesus, and she is more than compensated. You do not have to grieve for this little girl. This little girl is experiencing joys that we'll never know about. I said, just make it real so that you understand what the real grief is. The grief is that we are going to miss her, and we aren't going to get to see that. And you know what? That just, I mean, it helped people so much to put it into its perspective and recognize that we aren't grieving for this little girl. A person who knows the Lord and goes on to be with the Lord, there's nothing wrong with you missing them. But I'm saying that it would help if you understood that what devastates people and causes them to grieve so much isn't their great love for that person but it's their great love for themselves, and they just can't imagine what their life is going to be without them, and it really is selfish. Now again, we all all have a self, and I'm not condemning you for that, but I'm saying it helps tremendously to understand what it is that makes us this way. If you would recognize that the Lord told us that we're supposed to be dead unto ourself, that we are supposed to die to ourself, If you didn't love yourself so much, did you know it wouldn't matter what people say to you or don't say to you? There's a lot of people that think, well, it's what this person said. It's what they did to me that made me angry. It's not what people do to you that makes you angry. It's what's inside of you that makes you angry. And it's that self-love, self-awareness. I probably have used this example before, but if you had a corpse sitting in front of us today, you know what? You could spit on the corpse, kick the corpse, ignore the corpse, insult the corpse, and if it's a corpse, it won't matter. It doesn't respond. You know why you respond when somebody does something to you? Because you aren't a corpse. You're alive to yourself. It's so important to you what people think about you, and really that is the root Of all of this. And Jesus is telling his disciples, guys, if you loved me more than you loved yourself, 
you know what? You could find things to rejoice in even during this crisis period where they had seen Jesus crucified and it may have looked like their hopes were ruined. It may have looked like we gave up everything to follow you. What about us? Maybe they're coming after us. But if it hadn't have centered around them, if they would have been God conscious, if they would have loved Jesus more than they loved themselves, you know what? The disciples could have been rejoicing, saying, praise God, we know where Jesus is. They could have found a lot of comfort in that. But it's self-love, self-centeredness that causes all of the grief in our life. Worry. You know what? If you weren't so alive to yourself, you wouldn't worry so much about yourself. Worrying about your future, how you're going to make it financially, worrying about this relationship, is it going to work out? You know what? You can, you can actually reach a place to where it really doesn't matter what happens to you. It's just not that big of a deal. You can reach a place to where, God, I want to prosper and see success, not because I have to have it. I am content in you and satisfied in you, but I want to see success because you've provided it for me, because it'll be a good testimony. I can rub the devil's nose in it and things like that. But you don't have to succeed in order to be happy and to be content. You can find that totally in the fact that God Almighty loves you and has accepted you and forgiven you. And you know what I'm talking about right here is something that Every once in a while people get a glimpse of, but there's not very many people that live a life to where you aren't the center of the universe. We were raised this way. It's actually promoted. The secular world, of course, this is what it's all about. It's all about me and forget anybody else, stab everybody else in the back. But even Christians that have the example of Jesus, Jesus is the greatest example. Philippians chapter 2 talks about this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he knew that he was God, and yet he humbled himself, came down to this earth. And you got to remember that for 30 years before he began his ministry, here was the creator, the God of all of the universe, that the four creatures, the 24 elders, everybody in heaven fell down and there was constant praise and worship. That's who he was. That's what he was accustomed to. He comes down to this earth and walks by hundreds of people every day that don't even notice, who, don't even notice him, don't have a clue who he is. Can you imagine what that would have done to most of our egos to be around people that you created them and yet they may scorn you or ignore you? Worse ignore you, and you know what? He was able to do it and do it with joy. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. He was the happiest man on the face of the earth. And yet, he wasn't getting the recognition, the acclaim that he deserved, rightfully deserved. But the reason he could do it is because he, he so loved the world that he came. It wasn't about him. The reason most of us get so put out and so hurt by the way that people treat us is because it is about us. And we do what we do expecting a pat on the back. And if we don't get it, if we don't get the proper recognition, then we cause strife out of that. Again, I know that some of you are probably thinking, oh no, my strife, it's a family trait. It runs in the family. You just don't understand. I'm a type A personality or my whole family's like this. No, it's not in your genes. You know what? It's pride. Let me share. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 13 and look at this verse. You'll need to read this out of the Bible or you wouldn't believe this is in there. 
If you all can get this, this is going to be one of the most helpful things that you've ever understood, and it especially applies in the midst of a crisis situation. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Keep your finger there because I'll come back. But in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 14, it says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. You know, that's awkward the way that's stated. I won't explain that to you completely. But anyway, it says in this verse that contention is the beginning of strife. So you can plug that back into Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10, and it says, Only by pride cometh contention. You could say that only through pride comes strife. And you can put a lot of scriptures with this. James chapter 3 verse 16 says, Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Strife opens up a door to anything the devil wants to do. You know, there are some people that are confessing healing scriptures and trying to stand on healing with everything they're worth, and yet they're angry, contentious people. They will sit there and argue with with uh, customers or with clerks that are waiting on them. Or there's some people that just think that at home, uh, you just let your hair down and you say and do anything at home. I've been around a lot of people like that. And I've actually done marriage counseling before where I'm sitting there talking to someone and they, you know, I just in an effort to try and get my point across, I remember telling this one guy, I said, fella, you are an absolute jerk. I said, you are treating your wife terrible. And you could tell that the guy didn't like what I said. But you know what? He controlled himself. He restrained himself. And he looked at me and he says, well, you're probably right. And I said, now what would have happened if your wife would have said that? And boy, he just looked at me and you could, you could tell it would have been World War III. I said, that's a lot of the problem right here. See, you have been taught to treat a stranger better than you treat the person that you live with. I said, it ought to be the exact opposite. If you are going to treat people differently, treat the people you live with nicer than you treat a stranger. My brother had this right when he first got married. It was just a few months after they had been married and somebody was coming over for supper and Virginia was getting out the china and the crystal and the sterling silverware and she was setting the table and Ray says, what are you doing? And she says, we got company coming over. I'm putting out our best. And he went and got all that and put it up. He says, from now on, my family will use the best and we'll use the other stuff when company comes. And that's just the way my brother was. And you know what? That, their marriage was awesome until Virginia died a few years back but uh, in a car wreck. But I mean, they had a wonderful marriage and part of it is because, you know what? He treated his family better than he'd treat anybody else. Most of us just do the opposite and think that if they're family, it's open game. You just let your hair down. You can say or do anything. And so the point I'm making is some people are sitting here saying, I'm confessing healing, how come it isn't working? I'm standing on prosperity and I'm doing everything I know. Why isn't it working? The Bible says where envy and strife is, there is confusion. 1 Corinthians 14 says God is not the author of confusion, but Satan is the author of confusion. So you could say that where envy and strife is, there's the devil and every evil work. You open up a door to anything the devil wants to do through anger and strife. It is deadly. And yet there's a lot of people that just think, oh no, this is just my personality type. That's just the way I am. I pride myself on speaking my mind. What it is, you're just a self-centered person. 
And so I had one guy come up to me in Pueblo. I was ministering on this, and this little Spanish guy came up to me, and he said, I've got a lot of problems. And he says, I'll admit it. But he says, you can't tell me that pride is one of my problems. He says, if anything, I've got the lowest self-esteem. He says, I've got a terrible image. He says, I hate myself. And yet this says, only by pride comes contention. And he says, I am a very angry person. It is not pride. And what I had to do was redefine pride to him. Because, see, most people think pride is just going around thinking you're better than everybody else. That's just one manifestation. It's like if you have a stick, there's two opposite ends of a stick. One, uh, one end of pride is arrogance, but you know what the other end is? This will shock some of you. Did you know timidness, shyness, low self-esteem is a super manifestation of pride? And most people don't see that. They think, no, pride is just arrogance. Now, if I had more time, I believe I could prove this to you in Scripture, but I'm just going to tell you this, and you either accept it or reject it. But I believe that pride at its root is just self-centeredness. And it doesn't matter if self thinks you're better than everybody else or if self thinks you're worse than everybody else. You are still self-centered. That's pride. And I can say that out of uh, real conviction because I was, like I said, an introvert. I couldn't hardly look at a person in the face, and I can tell you exactly what I was thinking. I was so concerned about what's everybody going to think about me. Am I going to say something stupid? It would be better for me to keep my mouth shut and have people think I'm an idiot than to open my mouth and remove all doubt. Amen? (laughs) And so I was afraid to say anything. And if somebody did tell me like their name, I wasn't listening to their name. I was thinking about what am I going to say. And because of that, that's what fueled all of this self-centeredness. Did you know shy people are self-centered people? They are thinking about themselves. And some of you may disagree with that. If I had more time, I believe I could prove it, but I believe that with all of my heart. And I can tell you that if you are a shy, timid person, it's because you are fearful of what might come your way if you were to really express yourself and to say what's in your heart. And that's the reason that you don't Speak up. There's probably some of you in here that have been healed of incurable diseases. Maybe your marriage has been fixed. God has done a miracle for you. God has done something in your life. And you have something that could bless people. But if I was to ask you, all right, come up here and just share with us what Jesus has done. There's some of you that immediately would say, oh no, I don't want to do this. Why? You've got something that could change a person's life. Why is it that you're fearful or timid about sharing it? It's because I haven't prepared. I may not come across well. What are people going to think about me? You know what that is? You can sit there and say, well, I'm just not that kind of... I'm not an outgoing person. What that means... And again, there is some variance here. Some people are more outgoing than others. But I'm talking about timidness, shyness. You know what that is? It's just self-centeredness. You're thinking about yourself instead of others. When I first started ministering, like I told you, I was an introvert, and I struggled for at least two years to be able to get out of me what God had put in me. And I was ministering one time, and a guy came up to me after I'd preached. And he says, you know, you've got some good things to share with people. And if you ever got to where you were more concerned about the people you're ministering to than you are about yourself and what they thought about you, you could be a blessing. And man, it was true. That set me free. 
It showed me, you know what, I used to enter into the thing, what is everybody going to think about me? Oh God, am I going to say this right? And it was all about me. And that's what self-centeredness, that's what shyness and timidness is all about. When You know who a truly humble person is? It's a person that doesn't care about themselves. It doesn't matter if they get exalted or debased. It's not about them. They'll say something good about themselves or something bad about themselves. They'll just say it the way that it is, and it doesn't matter if it works to your advantage or disadvantage. That's a faithful witness. But most of us are so self-centered that actually everything we do, it all centers around is this what is going to promote me? Is this going to make me better? Is all about me, me, me? And did you know that that is the root of all contention? All, pride, all strife has its root in self-centeredness. If you weren't so concerned about yourself, you wouldn't be bothered. What people say to you wouldn't affect you. Again, if you take a corpse, a corpse is not going to respond to insults because it's dead. If you were dead to yourself... If it wasn't about preserving and promoting yourself, did you know what? What people think about you wouldn't affect you. I know some of you think that's not true, but it is true. You may not have thought it through, but that's absolutely true. It's because you love yourself so much is the reason you are contentious. It says only by pride. It didn't say this is one of the leading causes. For type A personalities, this is what causes it. This says it's the only reason. This is the only reason. There is no other reason. It's not what people do to you. If it was just that if people do this, you're just human. You have to respond this way. It's just a chemical, physical reaction. There, You have no choice. You're like a dog or something, and you, you aren't you know, created in the image of God. It's just chemicals. If that's the way that it was, then you couldn't control your reaction. But Jesus turned around to the very people crucifying him and said he was more concerned about them than he was about himself. Instead of wanting to get even, man, could he have ever blasted those people? Could he have ever released the power? And yet, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He loved those people more than he loved himself. And somebody says, well, that's God. Well, Stephen did the same thing. When he was being stoned to death, he said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge in Acts chapter 7. And we were commanded to do the same thing. Did you know that every one of us can fall in love with God more than you love yourself to a place to where it doesn't bother you if your mate is ragging on you. It doesn't destroy you. Again, I'm not saying that you love it, but I'm saying that you can get to a place to where it's not going to destroy you or dominate you or control you. It's your self-centeredness that makes you so vulnerable to all of this. I saw a TV show one time where they were trying to turn you against capital punishment. And they showed this guy who had raped a woman and then murdered her and he was in solitary confinement and awaiting, I think it was the electric chair, and they showed some things and then they went to his prison cell and it went from color to black and white to make it more drab and more oppressive. And everything went to black and white. And they showed this little tiny cell and this guy was sitting there on his bunk with his head in his hands and, you know, looking miserable. And they, they went around the room and showed you what a bleak, terrible existence he lived in. And then the camera went down the hallway and started towards the electric chair. And you could see it down there. And they zoomed in on it. And the narrator was talking about all of this. And then they went and took this guy's baby pictures. 
and showed you this man who was going to be executed and showed you his baby pictures. And then they showed him as a little kid playing cowboys and Indians. He had a stick horse and a cowboy hat on and stuff. And they showed him when he was innocent like this. And then he was sexually abused when he was four or five and he had terrible things happen. And they showed you all of the stuff that happened to him. And you know what? You go to feeling sorry for this guy. And I believe in capital punishment. I'm not excited about it, but I do believe that it's scriptural in Genesis chapter 9. It's a command of God, and I believe that it is a deterrent to people. And so I'm not excited about it, but I believe it's better than the alternative. And so I believe in capital punishment, and yet as I watch this, and you see a little baby and think that someday we're going to put him to death, and especially when he was abused himself and he had all of these negative things happen, And you know what? I just couldn't help but feel in sympathy and sorry for this guy. And I actually was sitting there watching this thing thinking, God, isn't there a better way? Couldn't we deal with this something differently? And that's exactly what they designed this program to do. And as I was thinking about that, the Lord just spoke to me and He says, what would happen if you took this exact audience that is watching this and showed them the girl who was raped and murdered and showed her baby pictures? and showed her playing with dolls. And maybe she was a Christian girl, and she had all of these great hopes and aspirations, and some pervert comes into her life and rapes her for sexual gratification, and then wasn't even man enough to face what he had done, but kills her trying to uh, cover it up. The same group of people who were feeling sorry looking at all of his side of the story would turn into a vigilante committee and they'd lynch the guy if they saw her side of the story. And the Lord used that to illustrate to me Proverbs 13.10. It just depends on which side of things you're looking at. If you are only thinking about self and what people have done to you, it's impossible for you not to be angry because people are going to rub you the wrong way. But on the other hand, if you love people more than you love yourself, if you love God, first of all, and then love people more than you love yourself, did you know it is impossible for you to get angry with other people thinking more about them and what's good for them than yourself? You can't get angry without being self-centered. It can't happen. My brother is a good example. My brother had a major temper. I mean, violent. He nearly killed me a bunch of times. And uh, my brother would just fly off the handle and do things. I remember he, he nearly killed me a number of times. And yet, when he would calm down and his emotions were over, his pat statement was, I'm sorry, I didn't think about what I was doing. I didn't think about hurting you. You know what he was doing? He was validating this scripture that he was only thinking about himself. I had done something that ticked him off and he was thinking about what it did to him. He wasn't thinking about me and he had to wait until his emotions calmed down. And then when he saw how he had hurt me or hurt somebody else, then he says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Man, it's quiet in here. I know you all are thinking about this, but you may be one of those that you say, well, this is just the way I am. And you're thinking that it's your genes, it's your DNA... It's your selfishness that has made you angry. And maybe you were raised in a way that promoted it or embraced it or accepted it and therefore validated it and you haven't fought against it. But I'm telling you, it is not the way that God made anybody to be. The reason we are so angry, and again, there's different types of anger. It's not just where you lose your temper, but if you're a person that pouts. 
That's anger. It is. It's self-centeredness. You're just thinking about, look what they said about me. Look what they did to me and stuff like that. It's just focused on self. And you cannot be angry without being focused on self. You can't love others and be focused on yourself at the same time. You'll always get overwhelmed with, what. look what's happening to me and thinking about me. I'm telling you that self-centeredness is the source of all of our grief. Look at this passage of Scripture. This will illustrate that pride is not just talking about arrogance, but it's just self-centeredness. Over in uh, Numbers chapter, I think this is Numbers chapter 12. Let me look this up. This is talking about Moses. And Moses married a black woman. And because of this, Miriam and Aaron, his sister and brother, came against Moses and criticized him. In Numbers chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. It was an interracial marriage, and they didn't like this. And because of it, they disrespected him and came out against him. And, of course, the story goes on that God struck Miriam with leprosy. Somebody asked me, what do I think about an interracial marriage? I say, well, you're going to have problems. You need to think about it. Are you sure you're willing to deal with all of this stuff? But do I think that it's sin? I'm not going to be like Miriam. I'm not going to get struck with leprosy. To me, this solves the issue for me. You know, uh, I think you're going to have problems, but it's not sin. It's a decision. You can choose it, but you just need to think through all of this stuff. And so anyway, they came out and criticized Moses. And in verse 2 it says, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And look at this in verse 3. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's some statement. We know that there was 3 million Jews that came out of the land of Egypt, and they were a minority, so that means there had to be more than 3 million Egyptians. And then the land of Canaan and all of these nations... We don't know, but I can guarantee you there had to be 15 million, 20 million, 30 million people on the earth. Millions and millions of people. And Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And what makes this even more hard to believe is that Moses is the guy that wrote that. Think about that. See, most of us, with our typical impression of what humility is, if you were really humble, you'd never know it. That's the way we think. That you can't knock yourself down low enough. But boy, you just go a fraction of an inch above what is right about you. You're in pride. But religion will actually teach you to knock yourself down. People will get up and say things like, well, I don't have a, much of a voice, but y'all pray for me. God said, make a joyful noise. I'm just going to do the best I can. And then they start singing and they've had 10 years of operatic training You know what? That's religious. They don't really believe that. They're just knocking themselves down, hoping that you'll come up and say, oh, you shouldn't say that. That was just wonderful. It's a backhanded way of fishing for a compliment. And to prove it, go up to them during the week in the grocery store and say, you know what? You were right. I think you got the sorriest voice I've ever heard. And see if they'll just go, yes, brother, that's what I was telling you. It was a religious con. But we've been taught that that's humility is to say, well, I'm nothing, and you don't mean it. Let somebody come up to you and say, you're worse than nothing, and see if they will agree with that. It's just a religious con. You know what true humility is? It's saying about yourself what God says. And if God said you were the most humble person in this room, would you be humble enough to say it? 
You know, somebody in here has to have more humility. Somebody in here has to be the meekest person in this room. What if I had everybody bow their head, close their eyes, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to reveal who the most meek person in this room is. And if God was to speak to you and say, you're the meekest person, stand up and tell them it's you. How many of you would be meek enough to say, it's me? If you would sit there and think, well, what's everybody going to think if I say that? It's not you. You know what that is? That's pride. You are so concerned about how people perceive you that even if God said something good about you, you wouldn't say it. You know what? That's pride. It can be pride that keeps you from stepping out and saying the truth when you know that you're the best person for this job, but you won't say it because you're afraid. How are people going to perceive you? You know what that is? That's pride. We've been taught that, no, that's humility. No, it's stupidity. True humility is just not having an opinion. If God wants to exalt you and say something, you'll say what God says about you. But if God also says that, you know what, you are the least qualified for pride, you would be humble enough to say, well, it's certainly not me. I know that. You know what? Humility is just saying about yourself what God says. So arrogance is what the church is taught was pride, but that's only one manifestation. There's an opposite extreme where you beat yourself down and feel unworthy about yourself, and you know what that is? That's pride. You're exalting your opinion above God. Maybe God calls you to preach the Word, and you say, oh God, I can't do it. I'm just too timid. I'm too shy. God, I can't do this. You know what you're doing is exalting your opinion over what God says about you. If God tells you to do something, then God sees you as qualified. If you don't have the qualities in yourself, then He'll supernaturally qualify you to do it. And you just have to reach a place where if God tells you to do something, it's arrogance on your part to not do it for whatever reason. And if you're thinking, but I'm just not good enough, I'm not qualified, then you're a very proud person. You're exalting your opinion of yourself above what God says. So I'm saying all of this to show you that, you know what, pride has been misunderstood. People think it's only arrogance, but it's much more than that. Why is it that it seems like every one of us has to deal with this self-centeredness? It's because you were born self-centered. None of you came into this world selfless. A baby is 100% self-centered. It doesn't know that anybody else in the world exists. Your mother could have been up all night long delivering you and yet you want to be fed, you'll wake up the whole hospital, the whole house. You could bring a baby into this uh, classroom tonight, and they don't give a rip if anybody else is in here and wants to learn. If they want something, they'll cry, they'll make a scene, they'll do whatever. They are the center of the universe. Every one of us came into this world 100% self-centered. You were supposed to be trained out of it. But the sad fact is that most of us, our parents were also selfish, And so it's like a little kid when you see a little kid in the store and a little kid's throwing a fit and I want this and the parent says, no, you can't have that. That'll spoil your supper. All the kid's got to do is throw a fit, fall down on the floor, scream and holler and yell and I want this. And you know what most parents will do? Give it to them. Why? Because they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking, what's everybody going to think about me? Look at this little brat. And so instead (laughs) of doing what's good for the kid... They will do what's easy on themselves because of their own self-centeredness. And they actually have just rewarded selfishness. And they've said, you know what? Self 
can get its own way if you are willing to make a big enough fool out of yourself. And so you know what's going wrong with marriages today? People talk about the stress. There is no more stress in this lifestyle than there has ever been. I guarantee you, people in World War II, that was stress. What we're going through isn't stress. Man, we got all these advantages. You know what the problem is? That we have so much self-love and self-centeredness that that's what's causing all of our problems. We've got a chip on our shoulder. If you are a self-centered person, you are a person with a short fuse waiting to explode. And we are the most we are the most selfish generation that I've ever studied or read about. It all revolves around us. We have to have five plasma screen TVs and the newest, best, this and iPod. And if you don't have it, kids are complaining because they don't have the $200 pair of shoes that lights up when they walk. And they're, it's just unfair. Man, just pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. It's not about you. It's not about all of these things. So we are a self-centered society, and because of it, we are 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old adult brats throwing fits. And people, you know, I've dealt with thousands of people in marriage, and they say, but they did this. And they're always wanting me to get in. And which one's right? It doesn't matter who's right. You're supposed to love them regardless. But they did this to me. That's what it's all about. I guarantee you, if you want to be right, the only way to be right 100% of the time is just be single. (laughs) If you're going to be in a marriage, somebody's going to treat you wrong. And if you are a self-centered person, you aren't going to be able to get along with them. I had a woman that worked for me that she was a white woman married to a black man the only reason I mention that is to say that it was, a, it was a marriage where there was a lot of strife and things going on. And this woman's first husband died and uh, she inherited three corporations. And she was so stressed out trying to take over these corporations. She didn't have any business skills. And she, she had two children by the previous marriage and she was just stressed out. And she walked into a daylight Dunkin', I mean a daylight donut shop and this man walked up to her and said, your name is, and told her her name, and told her what had happened to her, and he says, I'm God, and if you will serve me, I'll solve your problems. And this woman wasn't born again, and so she worshipped him as God. She thought he was God. Called her name, knew this stuff. She married him. He tried to kill her. He broke her neck, poured hot grease over her, threatened to kill the kids. If they ever came out of the basement, he was going to kill the kids. And the night that I met her, her kids had tried to sneak up and get something out of the fridge, and he had tried to kill him, And so the police had him separated on the lawn, and they brought this woman over to my house and said, tell this woman she doesn't have to live with this man. And I said, well, the Scripture says if he's pleased to dwell with you, that you're supposed to stay with him. It doesn't sound like he's pleased to dwell with you. I said, I think you're free to leave. <laughs> but I said it just about that way. And then she looked at me and she said, but, and I said, but you don't have to leave. And the people who brought her over said, don't tell her she could stay with that man. And I said, it's just the devil in him that makes him act the way he does. You are born again. You don't have to be afraid of that. I said, if somebody leaves, let the devil leave. And this woman, anyway, she came to work for me. I started counseling her and I started teaching her these things. I said, you know why you're so angry? It's not what he's done to you. Now, he had tried to kill her. He had broken her neck. He had poured hot grease over her. He had done all of these things. And I said, but you know what? It's your selfishness 
that makes you so hurt by what he's doing. And she says, but he manipulates me and he says this. And I said, you could bring him in here and have him sit in front of me and say everything to me that he says to you. And I guarantee you, it wouldn't affect me the way it affects you. Because you know what? I don't value his opinion the way you do. I've never worshipped him as God. I said, I guarantee you, he could say what he wanted to about me and it wouldn't affect me the way it affects you. And I started teaching her these lessons and I taught her specifically only by pride comes contention and that if you would look on the other person and what's making them be the way they are instead of thinking about what they're doing, do you think about why are they the way that they are? I said, you can love anybody if you would look at their side of the story. And anyway, this woman's long story, but she went back. He was raised in Puerto Rico. He was dedicated to the devil, a blood sacrifice. Chickens were sacrificed at his birth, and he was dedicated to the devil at birth. He was brought up in all of this voodoo. He could quote the entire New Testament. He was a Baptist deacon, and he could quote the entire New Testament. And he was a very religious guy, and yet at night he would leave his body and bark at the moon and scratch at the walls and uh, spirits would walk through the house, demons would attack her when nobody was there and things were happening. And I just taught her how to love this guy in spite of what he's done. And anyway, she came, got me one time as I was coming out of a store, and she started hugging me, and she says, he tried to kill me last night. He took a butcher knife to her. And she had come so far that she just started laughing. And she says, you can't touch me. And he says, why can't I? And he says, because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And he, she started saying all of this and saying, you're going to get saved. You're going to be preaching the gospel. And this guy just threw the butcher knife down and says, well, if you love me, go fix me a sandwich. And she fixed him a sandwich and she got through it. And anyway, the reason I was bringing all of this up is to say... <laughs> that she went to a counseling session with a Christian counselor, and this is a guy that I knew, a spirit-filled, tongue-talking Christian counselor in Evergreen, Colorado, and I know this guy, and he's usually a pretty good guy. But they went in to counsel, and the very first thing he asked the man, he says, so what's your side of the story? And you know what this guy did? He was a smooth talker, real charismatic type person. He lied about her and accused her of everything that he had done. He said, she's broken my neck. She poured hot grease over me. She's taken a butcher knife to me. She's threatened to kill the kids. He lied about her and did all of this. Let me ask you, if you were going in for marriage counseling and if your mate lied about you and said all of those things, what would you have done? I can guarantee you the vast majority of people would have never have let them get more than a few words out of their mouth without you justifying and defending yourself. She just sat there and let him rant and rave and this marriage counselor got so mad that he stood up and he says, divorce this woman, you do not have to put up with that. And his wife had to calm him down and say, sit down, there's always two sides to the story. And so finally he composed himself and he sat down and he says, all right, what's your side of this story? And you know what she did? Instead of ragging on him or anything, she says, I used to think that he was my problem. But you know what? God showed me that it wasn't what he's doing that's the problem. It's the way that I am on the inside that's the problem. And she says, I am just as much a problem in this marriage as he is. And I'm asking God to change me. And she says, I'm changing just as fast as I can didn't offer a single criticism or anything. And boy, that guy said, divorce her. It was over. 
And so they walked out there. They got in the car. And he looked at her and he says, why didn't you say something? And she said, because God has healed me. And God loves me and I'm content. And I came here to get you help. And if running me down is going to help you, then she says, you can run me down all you want to. And you know what that guy did? He left. He says, your God's bigger than my God. And he was unable to levitate tables anymore. He couldn't leave his body. He couldn't call up these spirits. And he got so afraid of her that he moved out for six months. And she brought the kids out of the basement and was just worshiping God. And then the guy got born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they had problems because he wanted to go to Raymond, become a preacher, and she didn't want to be a preacher's wife. But you know how all of that situation was changed? She got to where she loved him more than she loved herself to the point that he could lie about her, run her down, take a butcher knife to her, and she didn't care. And you know what? Love never fails. It always overcomes. But you know, there's not one out of a thousand people that would respond the way that she did. They would be mad, upset, and justified, feel justified in it because, again, we put so much priority on myself. I'm telling you, if you were to die to yourself, you'd get to a place where it really doesn't matter what somebody else is doing. I know what I'm saying sounds foreign to most people. You say, you can't live this way. Well, don't wake me up. Amen. <laughs> I haven't arrived, but that I've left, and I guarantee you to a large degree, that's the way I live my life. I get hate mail and criticism and things, and it just doesn't bother me because of that. I actually had a guy one time that tried to run me out of my church in Pritchett, and this guy was one of my best friends. And every time I went by his business, I'd stop and go in and talk to him because he was one of my best friends. Well, anyway, he got mad at me over something, and he had railed on me and accused me of adultery, accused me of stealing money from the church, which I didn't even take a salary from the church. He lied about me. He got on the phone and started calling people. I went over to see him and he literally yelled at me and said, you are a crook and I mean just blasted me big time. But you know what? Because of the decisions that I'd made, I honestly was more concerned about him than I was myself and I didn't get hurt or offended over it. And the next week I was driving by his place and I stopped to go in and see him. And I asked Jamie, I said, do you want to go in with me? And she said, no way, I'm staying in the car. And I went in and saw him and talked to him, and he wouldn't hardly talk to me. And I came back out and sat in the car, and I said, something's wrong with Burley. I said, he's not as friendly as he usually is. And she just looked at me, and I said, honest, I can tell something's bothering him. And she had to remind me of him accusing me of adultery and stealing money and stuff. And I just spaced it. Because I knew it wasn't true and I didn't care about what he was saying about me and I'd been praying for And I honestly had forgot that stuff until she reminded me. You can reach a place where if you aren't selfish and thinking only about yourself, you can get to a place where it's just like water off a duck's back. It doesn't matter what people say about you. I know some of you are thinking, where did you come from? The Word. You can live like that. And so again, most of us were born, well, all of us were born selfish. And then we, instead of being trained out of it and being taught that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, instead we had selfishness reinforced. 
instead of learning that it's in losing your life that you really experience life, we were taught that, no, it's about take care of yourself. If nobody takes care of you, I mean, if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. And we have just had selfishness reinforced over and over and over. And because of it, we're adult brats. And the things that are causing so much strife is nothing but temper tantrums. We now do it in a different way. Instead of falling on the ground and sucking your thumb and screaming and yelling, we just now pout. You turn a cold shoulder, make the other person suffer long enough until you can get your way and get even with them, and it's adult brats. Amen or oh me. So, after I've ministered like this, I've had people come up to me before and say, Oh, I'm convicted. Pray for me. Cast this selfishness out of me. I can't do it. You know what? As long as you're breathing, you are going to have a self. You can't be delivered from self. So what do you do? You have to die to it. You have to resist it. And... uh, you need to understand it's a process. Like I was visiting with Jim Irwin one time, the astronaut that walked on the moon, and we were both doing a television program together. And I was in Vietnam when they walked on the moon, so I missed all of that. And I have just heard about it in, you know, uh, after the fact. I didn't get to go through all that, and I really missed that. And I I was pumping him for all of these questions. Like I was asking him, I said... How do you go to the bathroom in space? So we were talking about stuff like that. So he gave me his book. I gave him my books. And we were discussing all these things. And and uh, anyway, I thought that when they shot that capsule to the moon, that the technology must have been awesome. And that thing just landed on exactly where they had planned. And I was asking him about all this stuff. How did they do it? And he said, no, you got it all wrong. He said, we blasted off. And they threw that capsule towards the moon. And he said, every 10 minutes for four and a half days, we had a course correction. And he said, sometimes the course correction was a fraction of a degree. But he says, there were times that we were going 90 degrees opposite the moon. He said, sometimes we were so far off, we'd have to have a 10-minute burn to get that thing back on course. He said, the truth is, we didn't just go like that to the moon. We went like this to the moon. And then they had a 500-mile landing strip that they were going to land on. And when they landed and he got out of the lunar module, he said when he jumped on the surface of the moon, he was within five feet of missing a 500-mile long landing strip. And he was discussing all this. And and you know, when he was telling me that, the Lord applied that exact thing to this. They made it. They accomplished their goal, but it wasn't perfect. They had a course correction every 10 minutes on that journey. And the Lord spoke to me and says, that's the way it is when you deal with self. You do have to blast off. You know, there are a lot of people that have never had this self-centeredness countered. There's some people, there's probably people right here in this room that have never had anybody challenge this thing that you are the most important thing around. We've just had it reinforced in us, and some of you have never thought about it, and so you've never done anything. Well, you've got to blast off. You need to make a decision and start in that direction. But it's not going to be that you just make a decision one time, you dealt with it, and you have no more problem. You're going to have a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life dealing with this. You know, let's just say that we only had, let's say that we had five books less to give out 
than we have people in this room. And I started giving... You know, I've been teaching on not being self-centered, putting loving other people more than yourself. You know what? If we had five books less than the number of people, then you would have an opportunity for a course correction and say, you know what? Let's bless somebody else. I'll give it to somebody else. You might, as you get out of here, be pulling out of the parking lot and, you know, you're ready to get home. Maybe you got to drive back to Denver or someplace else and somebody's wanting to get out first. Are you going to put yourself ahead or are you going to defer to somebody else? When you get up in the morning, are you going to go back into the thinking just about yourself? Are you going to go to your job and are you going to stab somebody else in the back if that's what it takes for you to get advanced? Or are you going to put other people first? Are you going to trust God that God will, you know, the scripture says, Psalms chapter 75, that promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west or from the south, but it's God that puts up one and sets down another. Are you going to trust God to be the one that promotes you or are you going to promote yourself? Are you going to do what it takes to run over somebody else. I guarantee you, every 10 minutes for the rest of your life, you're going to have a course correction dealing with self. And you don't need to feel like, like, let's just say that you were to receive this message and say, you know what, I realize I'm an adult brat. And that, man, I need to change. And so tonight, you make a commitment and say, God, help me. I'm making a commitment that from now on, I want to put you first, other people, and then myself. I want to esteem others better than myself, Philippians chapter 2. And if you were to make that decision, and I mean God touch you and you head in that direction, you know what, you're going to have a dozen or more opportunities tomorrow to go back on that decision. And you may lose some of them. You may just be totally selfish. And you could respond by saying, oh no, God, I failed. It didn't work. No, that's not true. You blast it off. You just need a course correction. You just need to recognize, whoops, here I am again, being selfish, and you need to deal with it. You don't need to look at it as you fail because you don't ever get to where you are pure Holy Spirit, where you are pure selfless. There's always going to be some of your own selfishness in there as long as you're breathing, and you just have to deal with it. You know, I remember being at... um, Bob Tilton's church one time, and I had been on his television program and interviewed him, but, I mean, he interviewed me, but, you know, I was just one of a group of people that came through. I didn't, he never even talked to me when the camera wasn't on. It was all for the deal. He never visited with me. We didn't exchange anything. So anyway, I was at his church. There was two, three thousand people there, and I was sitting there in that church service, and I was, I'd been on the radio for ten years in, uh, on KWJS, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, I bet you I've ministered. I bet you I've ministered to thousands of these people on radio. I bet you some of them, it's probably changed their life. But because it's radio, they don't know what I look like. And I said, I wonder if anybody knows who I am. I wonder if Bob Tilton would remember me. And I was just thinking about all of this stuff. And um, the Lord said, course correction, Boy, here you are thinking about yourself. And I was just beginning to see that, oh God, here I am thinking about myself again. Does anybody know who I am? And about that time, Bob Tilton says, we're so blessed to have Andrew Womack here today. And he had me stand up. And you know what? Instead of that stroking my pride, it humiliated me because God had just been telling me what an arrogant person I was. And so because of that, instead of that 
blessing me, it was like I was standing and I just felt like naked. If people could see what I was thinking, if they really knew how selfish I was, nobody would love it and like it. And you know what? It was a course correction. It was totally humiliating to me. But did I just say, oh God, I failed. I went back on the commitment I made to you. No. It's just natural. It's human nature for you to exalt yourself And you don't ever get to the place to where you're incapable of doing it. You just deal with it and you see it. And when you see yourself getting selfish, then you just repent of it and go the other direction. Amen? So I want to encourage you that tonight, if you're receiving the things that I'm saying and recognizing that, you know what, man, I am an adult brat. I'm self-centered. Then instead of you... uh, Pray and making a commitment, and then if you ever have another selfish thought, come, feel like, oh, no, I failed, it didn't work, I've got to start over. No, you don't blast off again. You just make a course correction. You're moving in the right direction. You just have to adjust yourself, and you will get closer and closer and closer, but you don't ever arrive, you just leave. Amen? Let me use one other scripture, the scripture that God used to change my life, and this is what led up to my experience on March the 23rd, 1968. And the scriptures that God spoke to me, He spoke them to me at Christmas, 1967, is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the first scripture that God ever supernaturally revealed to me. And He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I was wanting to know God's will for my life. I was a senior in high school, and I was about to have to make a decision about what I was going to do with college. And so I started seeking God because I wanted to know what His will was. And when I saw that phrase, that you will prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, I said, this is it. What do I have to do? And I started backtracking and I went back to verse 1 and started meditating on it. And from Christmas of 66 until March the 23rd of 68, or not 66, 67, Christmas of 67 until March the 23rd of 68, I was praying and saying, God, what is a living sacrifice? What does this mean? And of course, the Lord showed me a lot of things, but basically a sacrifice is where you die to yourself to where you commit yourself to God more than you're committed to yourself. And as I meditated on that, that's what led up to that experience. And then the Lord appeared and showed Himself to me and I made this commitment. And you know what it was? I didn't understand it in these terms that I've been talking about, but I actually committed myself to God more than I was committed to myself. I renounced myself. I got off of the throne of my life and I said, God, I won't call the shots. If you want me to be a janitor the rest of my life, I'll be a janitor. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I literally quit ruling and controlling and dominating my life. And man, that's where my life transformed is through this very lesson that we're talking about. And one of the things that I learned out of Romans 12:1, it says that you have to be a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> so you this is the point that I'm making. It's not a one-time sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice and you're going to have to get back up on that altar time after time after time. You don't ever if you truly commit yourself to God as a living sacrifice, you don't ever have to make the commitment again. 
And after that experience that I was talking about on March 23rd, 1968, did you know I, I turned myself inside out? I committed myself to God with no reservations. And there was, there was nothing else to give God. I gave Him everything I was and there was nothing left to give. Now, since that time... I've realized that there were areas that I wasn't conscious of at the time. And as God reveals things to me, I'll deal with it and stuff. But I mean, I gave him the keys to everything. I made the absolute surrender, total commitment. But did you know what? That doesn't mean that I never had another selfish thought or anything. I had to start dealing with it. I'm still dealing with it. I guarantee you, if some of you were to come up and spit in my face, you know what? I'd probably have a selfish thought. I'd probably think about, well, who are they to treat me that way and what about me? You know, but I'm to a place now to where I wouldn't let that influence my actions. I had that happen where a guy spit a big chew of tobacco right in my face as I was witnessing to him. And you could ask uh, people that were with me. Linus Lefevre was with me. And I wiped it off and never missed a word in the sentence. Amen. And just kept talking and kept telling this guy how much God loved him and stuff. And I've reached a place where, you know what, I I had thoughts. I honestly thought about, you sorry thing about, just punch your lights out. I have the same thoughts that anybody else has. I'm not saying that self isn't here, but it's just that I've learned not to indulge it and I've seen the benefit of it so many times that now I can overrule what my selfish inclinations would be. And so I'm still making course corrections, but you know what? There is a time that you have to blast off, that you have to head in that direction. And brothers and sisters, most people and most Christians have never heard the things that we're talking about. And it's easy, especially if you're charismatic, that you could actually come to the Lord with yourself completely in check. And the reason that you came to the Lord was because you needed healing, or you needed your marriage healed, or you needed prosperity, or you had been discouraged, and you could actually come to the Lord, especially with the charismatic doctrine where it teaches that God wants to heal you and prosper you and bless you, and you can use God for nothing but selfish things so that He's just your grocery cart. You go up and down the aisles of heaven, and in the name of Jesus, I want a little bit of this, and it could all be about you and just selfish, selfish, selfish stuff. There's a lot of charismatic Christians that I guarantee you, you are the God of your life and you are more important than anybody else. And you know that God says not to divorce, but the truth is that I don't like it. And I'm going to do what I want to and forget God. And if there, if it's not justified, there are, I believe, justifiable reasons. But if it's not justified, I don't care. I'm going to do what pleases me. I don't have to live this way. What about me? I've got rights. Boy, that attitude is alive and well. And there's people today that I guarantee you if push came to shove between what God told you to do and what you want to do, there is no contest. You would win out in a heartbeat. Man, that's not even baby Christianity. True Christianity is coming to the end of yourself and making God more important than yourself. And I'm telling you, a lack of this truth is at the root of all of your problems. You're going to have people rub you the wrong way. It just is going to happen. And so you've got to have basically the same thing happen to you that's happened to me. It doesn't have to happen the same way, but it's the same principle. You have to have an encounter to where you realize you aren't the center of the universe 
and you have to put God as the center of the universe. You have to fall in love with God and other people more than you love yourself and blast off in that direction and begin the process. And then you have to start dealing with it when you see yourself rising back up. Don't get condemned or feel like it didn't work, but just realize that, you know what, there's another course correction, and you just get back on track and keep going. That's the process. And I'm telling you, this this would set you free. It really would. There, There is no other reason that people get into strife except pride. It is not what people do to you. And again, that's what most people think. Most people know that you're supposed to turn the other cheek. If somebody sues you at the law, give him your cloak. Not only give him your cloak, but give him your coat also. Do all of these things. Most of us have heard this, and we desire to do it, but we put limits on it. It's like you build a little fence around you. And you say, anything minor that falls within this perimeter, I will turn the other cheek. But if a person lies about me or you know whatever it is. We all have limits and there's just lots of things that are outside of the bounds of that scripture. You know what? The scripture says that you're supposed to love. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Be ye kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. How did Jesus, how did God forgive you? You know what? God forgave you before you ever asked for forgiveness. And Jesus died for you not knowing whether you would accept what He had done or not. Everything that every person has ever done, Jesus took their sins and paid for them knowing that it was going to be wasted on some of those people. And He forgave their sins before they asked. He forgave the sins of people who hated Him. And the scripture says that we are supposed to forgive even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. You don't just forgive when a person comes to you and asks forgiveness. You don't just forgive when they repent and change and turn. You're supposed to forgive people whether they ever ask for forgiveness or not. But most of us are totally self-motivated in most of the stuff that we do. And you know what? If you would change that and get to a place to where you love God to such a degree that it's not about you and you love other people, it would totally transform your life. You could get rid of bitterness, unforgiveness. I can truthfully say tonight that I am not mad at a single person. I've got thousands of people that hate me and I've got people that have lied about me and done things to me, but there isn't a person in this world that I hate. There isn't a person in this world that I couldn't sit down and love and bless. I've got people that have gone on nationwide television and I've sent them offerings and blessed them and sent people to their church. I had not got a thing against them. That's a great way to live. I sleep good. Amen.